Thanks, Drew. Thank you, men, for singing. Thank you for being here. I'm excited about these gospel men's seminars coming up. Uh, I look forward to the thought of, well, years of this and the fruit that God would uh, perhaps produce in us by getting together quarterly and, um, and thinking about truth together. Let me pray, and we'll get, it, we'll get after it this week. Lord, it is good to sing your truth and be reminded of it and to hear others confess it and rejoice in it. We thank you for these brothers here today. We thank you for good food. We thank you, Lord, for the time you've given us to look into your word and to pray together and to encourage each other and seek to apply your word to our lives. We pray we would be gospel men and all that that entails. We pray we would grow in gospel grace. Today, Lord, as we think about being gospel men who encounter a great, gracious God, help us afresh to stand in awe and wonder and give thanks to you, the God who saved sinners such as us. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, you can turn with me, if you have a Bible with you, to Isaiah 6. That's where we're going to be mostly today. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he said, what we think about God, when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. What we think about, when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. So I ask you just to ponder in your own mind what comes to mind when you think about God. Of course, probably we should start by asking the question, do we think about God much at all? Are we proactive in thinking about God? Is that something we go out of our way to do? But then we should think, we should ask, well, do we think about God in wrong ways? Do we have a caricature view of God, maybe as an old grandpa, or as the biggest Santa Claus, or, or, or some superhero that is on steroids. Now, maybe we might have a truncated view of God. Of course, all of us think smaller thoughts of God than we should. None of us think God's thoughts fully and accurately to the nth degree, but, but are we sometimes perhaps consciously being subjective and selective about what parts of God we want to think about. Martin Luther wrote to a guy named Erasmus, his Roman Catholic theological opponent. He wrote to Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. J.B. Phillips, in the 1950s, wrote a little book called Your God is Too Small. I want us to consider this morning how the same could be true for us. Is our God too small? Are our thoughts of God too human? Again, ask yourself, what happens in the Bible when... One of God's people encounters God in some sort of spectacular and special and up-close manner. They're They're not that common. It's not a given. 
that every saint will get such an encounter. Not everyone meets God at, at a burning bush or hears his voice directly or gets a vision of the throne room of heaven, but a, a few saints did. And what happened when they did? What was the result? Well, here's one of them. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts we'll stop there for now before we get too far into this we should think about the setting or the situation that this chapter comes to us in it's in the year that king uzziah died isaiah was a prophet in the 700s bc that's a time of upheaval for Judah. It's before the exile. The exile's on the horizon, as Isaiah is telling the people. It's a time generally when God's people are persistently wicked. And many of the kings of these days in Isaiah's time followed the people and were as well wicked and wayward. But King Uzziah was an exception to that for most of his life. King Uzziah was faithful. He was an effective king. He reigned for 52 years. He brought peace and stability and prosperity. Now, sadly, that didn't do much for people spiritually. The people remained stubbornly wicked throughout these blessed years of King Uzziah. And also sad is the fact that at the end of King Uzziah's life, he was lifted up with pride. He went astray from the Lord, and the Lord cursed him with leprosy, and eventually he died from it. But nevertheless, on the whole, for many years, King Uzziah was a good and wise king who brought stability and safety, and generally he was an example to the people. And yet we're reminded that good kings aren't always good, and even the best kings don't always last. They don't live forever. So feel the uncertainty as you hear in the year that King Uzziah died. There's disappointment there. That's number one, the situation. Number two, let's consider the vision. Isaiah saw the Lord. Now that is incredible. That is unthinkable if you know much from your Bible. Remember that God told Moses in Exodus 33, no man can see me and live. 
In fact, Isaiah will later write in chapter 64, he writes to God, no eye can see you. But here in chapter 6, it says, I saw the Lord. And we can't know exactly what or how Isaiah saw what he saw. We don't know whether this was a vision and not an actual encounter with heaven, or perhaps it was a real peek into heaven, but some of God's glory was dialed back. We, we don't know. We're not supposed to figure that out in some sort of scientific problem-solving way. But it is supposed to hit us as mind-blowing and unthinkable that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne and high and lifted up. In the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the true king, and he was reigning. This king, the true king, does not die. In fact, he reigns. He's exalted. His reign is unthreatened, high and lifted up. It's majestic. It says the train of his robe filled the temple. Just picture that. A robe so long, flowing, and majestic that it reaches the corners of the temple. Verse 2, it says, Above him stood the seraphim. These are angels. Literally, they're the burning ones. The burning ones. These are no ordinary angels. These are angels designed for God's intimate presence and for his throne room worship they have six wings because with two they cover their face no doubt to shield their eyes from God's blazing glory with two they covered their feet and with two they flew perhaps because wherever God is that ground is holy we learn that from Exodus 3 Moses take off your sandals the ground you're standing on is holy because God is there well this is God's heavenly ground and God sits on a throne there and angels do not share that same floor space with God they hover Isaiah doesn't tell us how many angels were there but when Revelation, when, when John in Revelation tells what he saw of the throne room of heaven, he says there were myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of these jaw-dropping creatures. And they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's not just that God is pure morally. He is that. He's holy in that sense. And the word holy can mean that. But holy also means other. Transcendent is an old theological word for it. That, that God transcends our thoughts and our words and our categories. God is other. He is beyond us. He is not like us. And he is like that. Not times three. That's not the idea that he's not just holy, but he's extra holy and then a little even more holy. It's not holy, holy, holy for each person of the Trinity, probably. This is three times for emphasis. Each one ratcheting up exponentially the degree 
and importance of his holiness or otherness. He's not just fully holy, which is what holy would mean. He's not just doubly holy, which is what holy holy might mean, but he is ultimately holy, perfectly holy. He is holy to the nth degree. Ray Ortland, who's been at our church before for a conference, he pastors in Nashville, he wrote this about holy, holy, holy. He says, each word boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. No other threefold adjective appears in all the Old Testament. It takes a unique linguistic contrivance as the seraphim strain at the leash of language to say that God alone is God. He's not like us, only bigger and nicer. He is in a different category. He is holy. That's what God's proper name means. His revealed name, Yahweh. I am who I am. He is holy and he is glorious. The whole earth is full of his glory. His glory spills out of that robe-filled, angelic-filled temple into the whole world. He's not limited to the temple. He's not limited, limited to Israel. His glory fills the earth. And remember, this is what the burning angels are saying to one another in this temple scene. And they are saying it quite loudly. Verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. When God shows up in intimate and powerful ways, things often find themselves on fire, or they're smoke, or, or they shake like Mount Sinai. Here the shaking is because angels so loudly antiphonally say to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of all the angels. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now thirdly, let's think about the reaction. There's the situation, the vision, the reaction in verse five. Isaiah said, woe is me for I am lost. Woe. Not woe, like, whoa, whoa, horsey. Woe is a prophetic curse. Old Testament prophets had two messages. Sometimes it would be a message of blessing. They'd say, blessed are, blessed is. And sometimes they would have a message of curse, and they would say, woe, woe unto you. Woe un That's what Jesus is doing when we get to the New Testament. Blessed are the peacemakers, and woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. But Isaiah pronounces a curse upon himself. Woe is me. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips. Is he? I mean, this is arguably the most righteous man in the land. And he's a prophet. But one glimpse of the Lord of glory and he gets a real good glimpse of himself. And it spelled trouble. It didn't matter that he was the lone voice of reason in the land. 
It didn't matter that he was God's chosen vessel to represent God to the people. It didn't matter that his mouth was actually the instrument of God's words to the people. One look at God, and he sees himself as a man with a dirty mouth. And he's in the midst of a people of dirty mouths. He now identifies himself with the people. He's essentially saying, we're all in trouble. It's not just you. He starts with himself. We've all gone astray. We've all fallen short of God's glory. In relative goodness will not do with a God this holy, this majestic, this glorious. This is often the reaction from God's people when they get a good taste of God, you could say. Remember Job? Job went through great suffering. He wondered where God was and whether God was just. And he wanted to have a hearing with God. He wanted to make his case before God. And for 37 chapters, he tried to get that hearing. And then God spoke to him. God revealed his glory. God pulled back a little bit of the curtain into God's ways. And Job responded in chapter 42 like this. I had heard of you before, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In Luke chapter 5, shortly after Jesus called the disciples to follow him, he took them out on a little fishing exposition, a little fishing expedition. You can tell I'm a preacher, not a fisherman. I called it an exposition, not an expedition. Took them on a little fishing expedition. Remember the story? They caught so much fish that the boat began to sink. How would you respond? I mean, high fives? This is incredible. I mean, all this fish. Peter responds like this. Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You might wonder, Peter, why would you bring up your sin at a time like this? It's just fish. It's a miracle. It's good. You should receive the blessing. But he understood that the, the God who's in charge of fish is in the boat, and there's a reckoning that needs to happen and, and he's in trouble unless God gives grace. The prophet Habakkuk, in that story, he's uh, in a time of turmoil. He wonders whether God sees what's going on. He wants God to give him an answer about what God is up to. And, and then God gives him an answer. Habakkuk's not satisfied with it. And so he says, I, I want another answer. In fact, I'm going to wait for you to give me a better answer than that one. And God gives him another answer, a little more firm than the one before. And then Habakkuk responded, I hear, my body trembles, my lips quiver, rottenness has entered my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. He got a glimpse of God, 
and it wrecked him. It didn't just wreck him, though, because as Habakkuk goes on to say, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So with this God, there isn't just devastation. There is hope of salvation. How about John in Revelation 1, when he gets a a vision of the risen Christ? He saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. His voice was like the roar of many waters. His right hand held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But it doesn't stop there. John says, but he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Fall down before me, sure. Jesus didn't say, John, get up, please, what are you doing? Bowing was the proper response. The kind of dread that John had wasn't quite right because Jesus has conquered the grave. So there's hope. There's hope for Job and for Peter and for Habakkuk and for John and for Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah now. Fourthly, there's the purification that happens. After his reaction of devastation, God responds with purification in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there's this repeated imagery of holy things becoming contaminated when something unholy comes near or touches it, at least ceremonially so. But here, the image is reversed. The unclean thing, which is Isaiah's lips, is touched by something clean, a coal from the altar, and then the unclean thing actually becomes clean, not the other way around like it usually is in much of the Old Testament. Isaiah is cleansed. His guilt is removed. Not only is the cleansing being transferred in this imagery in an unusual way, but but that which should burn or hurt on the sensitive thing of lips, it instead heals him. The hot coal does does not burn his lips, but cleanses his lips. What a beautiful picture this is. This isn't exactly how God, in the end, will cleanse us, we know. We need more than just hot coal on our lips. But it symbolizes that which God does to atone for sin. Notice God does it. 
God must do it. The, the angel must come to Isaiah. Isaiah confessed his sin, yes, but praise God, his confession doesn't just hang out there, floating in space helplessly. God comes, God cleanses, God is, yes, transcendent and scary and majestic, but he is also merciful and near and personal. He isn't just transcendent. Theologians have another word for his closeness, that he is imminent, he's transcendent, and he's imminent. It says in the Psalms, he's near to the brokenhearted. Isn't that, isn't that baffling if we realize that we're sinners? We're not just brokenhearted. We're brokenhearted sinners. And the Lord is near. Or as Isaiah will go on to say, he records God as saying in chapter 66, God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He'll put his eyes upon them. Those who are humble contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. God is glorious and God is gracious. You see this in Exodus 33 when Moses, he needs encouragement for the journey ahead and he asks God to show him his glory. And that's when God says, you can't see my glory and live, but here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll shield you from the fullness of my glory. And you'll see just the, the trail end, the backside of my glory. And, and as, as I pass, I will speak my name. This is what God says his long version of his name is. Exodus 33, the Lord passed before him. And said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. And then it says, Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. God is glorious. And he is gracious. In his graciousness does not mean that he is simply chummy. So let's not think that forgiveness or even God's nearness removes his transcendence. Let's not think that God is scary until we find forgiveness and then he's only chummy. David knew this well. He said in Psalm 130, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isaiah's purification wouldn't lead to high fives, but it does lead to a commission. That's our fifth and last section to consider, a commission. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and, and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. The prophet has a new commission, a new mission. And it's not going to be an easy one if you look down and just glance at verses 9 to 13. You'll see that Isaiah's message is going to be one of judgment. 
and the people's response will continue to be unbelief and hard-hearted rejection. They will hear, but they won't hear. They aren't going to see, even though Isaiah is going to keep pointing and pointing and pointing. And and this hard-hearted unbelief is going to continue all the way through the exile, through the destruction of Jerusalem, through the removal of the people into Babylon, and, and for them to stay there for a whole generation. So this is decades of a hard ministry, a hard message, and persistent unbelief. But it doesn't mean, as we know from the rest of the story, that God is giving up on his people. The judgment will be severe, but it won't be permanent. And so there's hope. In fact, that's the last word of Isaiah 6. The chapter ends with a word of hope. Look at verse 13, the last sentence. The holy seed is its stump. Now, that's mysterious to us at first, maybe, but, but we can figure this out. That means from God's people, from, from the remnant of God's holy people, though they are cut down, cut down, cut down, cut down, there'll be something there that remains. Think of it as a stump. And from that holy seed and from this stump will come something great. You have to go to chapter 11 to find out what it is. Would you turn there? Isaiah 11. There it says, There shall come forth a shoot, a little bit of growth, from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. From the line of David, from the stump of God's people, Something will shoot out. A branch from its roots will bear fruit. This shoot coming out of the stump is actually a person. Verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Oh, this is Jesus. Look down at verse 10 of Isaiah 11. In that day, the root of Jesse. The shoot is also the root He's David's son and David's Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a sign for the people. And of him shall the nations inquire. They will seek him. And his resting place will be glorious. This is a good king. And he will last forever. Unlike King Uzziah, the holy seed is its stump. And from the stump comes a shoot from the line of David. I wish we could take the time this morning to then go fishing in the New Testament for how Jesus is the King of David who comes to cleanse from our sins. I hope you know that story well. I hope you know those truths. Let me just close with three questions. One, have you ever truly come to God and seen your sin and been cleansed? Have you had a a, a moment like Isaiah had that day? It may not have been in Jerusalem. It may not have been in the temple. It surely wasn't in the year that King Uzziah died. But you can see some similarities. Have you had an encounter with God that exposed your sin and you confessed your sin and it led to cleansing. 
Maybe you've never come to the true God. Maybe you've never really experienced any sense of guilt for your sin. Maybe you've never in your life, you say anyway, felt very icky on the inside. Well, then there isn't cleansing to be had. Or maybe you know your sin all too well, but there isn't cleansing that's been had. A second question, if you've said yes to the first. Christian, are you seeing him? Are you still seeing him? And by that, I mean, are you going to his word, right? We don't go to a temple. We don't pray necessarily for a vision. We have his word where God gave himself in visions and encounters to people. And it's where we go now with the eyes of faith to see in words what God is like. We, we meet with him in a real way. We behold the glory of Christ and are changed from one degree of glory to another, according to 2 Corinthians 3. And I think Paul has in mind there that we behold Christ not in person. No, he was writing to Corinthian Christians with the Bible, essentially, and expecting that they would behold Christ in that very word. So behold him. Are you seeing him? Are you encountering God through his word? Are you meditating on it, marveling at it, stirring up awe in your mind and in your, your senses about him? Do you keep seeing his glory and want more of it? And as a result, do you keep seeing your sin? Right? If we see him as holy and lifted up and magnificent and glorious and powerful and other then we'll also see our sin, our shortcomings, and we'll feel it, and we'll want once again to find rest and comfort in his grace. This is the experience of the Christian. But we know that times, at times we, we get used to not seeing him, and hence not seeing our sin, and hence not re-experiencing his grace. A third question, are you ready to serve him? Are you willing to raise your hand? If God says, who will go for me, will you say, here am I, send me? That may not mean go to the mission field, but it may. It may not mean being a pastor or an elder or a preacher, but it, but it may. But whatever form it takes, will you go where the Lord sends you? Will you do what he tells you? Will you represent him in the world? Every Christian we know is called to represent him to the world. To every Christian, he says, who will go and represent me to the world? The, the message may at times be hard and the rejection may at times be frequent. Are you still willing to go? Is my glory and my grace enough for you to say, put me in coach, wherever that might be and however that might look? Maybe just simply it's more than you have been doing. Well, let me pray and ask for God's help to apply these things. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. And we are not. 
The whole earth is full of your glory, and you've made us to glorify you, and we've gone astray. We confess that afresh this morning, and we thank you for grace, for cleansing, for your initiative, for your glorious plan to transfer cleanness to uncleanness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that you, in words, describe for us what Isaiah saw and what John saw and what Job said and what Habakkuk felt. We thank you for your word. Lord, you have given us an embarrassment of riches in this day with Bibles aplenty and with sermons available and, and with, with search engines on the web and, and our, on our computers. We, we, Lord, we confess that we know to whom much is given, much is required. And we've not done much with what you have given us. So we pray for your help, Lord. We pray for wisdom in our days. We pray for wisdom in our time, in our schedule, in our commitments, because most of us feel like we're too busy even to open your word or to pray. And we know that's, we know that's not right. We know something is wrong. So give us wisdom. Give us help. Give us yourself. Show us your glory for your namesake and for our good.